Section thirteen of the Crimson Circle by Edgar Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter thirty one. Thalia answers a few questions. Derek Yale sat with his head on his hands, reading a newspaper. He had read a dozen that morning, and one by one he had cast them aside to open another. Under the eyes of the police, he quoted incompetence at police headquarters he shook his head they're giving our poor friend parr a bad time in this morning's press he said as he threw the paper aside and yet he was as incapable of preventing that crime as you or i miss drummond Thalia drummond looked a little piqued that morning there were dark circles about her eyes and an air of general listlessness which was in contrast to her usual cheerful buoyancy. "'If you're in that game, you expect to get kicks, don't you?' she asked coolly. "'The police can't have it all their own way.' He looked at her curiously. "'You aren't a particular admirer of police methods, are you, Miss Drummond?' he asked. "'Not tremendously,' she replied, as she laid a stack of correspondence before him. "'You aren't expecting me to get up testimonials to the efficiency of headquarters, are you?' He laughed quietly. "'You're a strange girl,' he said. "'Sometimes I think that you were born without compassion. "'You worked for Froyant, too, didn't you?' "'Yes,' she said shortly. "'You lived some time in the house.' She did not reply, but her grey eyes met his steadily. "'I did live some time in the house,' she admitted. "'Why do you ask that?' "'I wondered if you knew of the existence of this underground room,' said Derrick Yale carelessly. "'Of course I knew of the room. Poor Mr. Froyant made no secret of his cleverness. He has told me a dozen times how much it cost,' she added with a faint smile. He cogitated a moment. Where were the keys usually kept that opened the door of the bomb-proof room? In Mr. Froyant's desk. Are you suggesting that I have had access to them, or that I was concerned in last night's murder? He laughed. I'm not suggesting anything, he said. I am merely inquiring, and as you seem to know a great deal more about the house than most of the people who live in it, my curiosity is natural. Would it be possible, do you think? to push up that trap without making a noise. Quite, she said. The trap-door works on counterbalances. Are you going to answer any of those letters? He pushed the pile of letters aside. What were you doing last night, Miss Drummond? This time his method was more direct. I spent my evening at home, she said. Her hands went behind her, and that curious rigidity which he had noticed before, stiffened her frame. "'Did you spend the whole of the evening at home?' She did not answer. "'Isn't it a fact that about half-past eight you went out, carrying a small parcel?' Again she made no reply. "'One of my men accidentally saw you,' said Derrick Yale carelessly, "'and then lost sight of you. Where did you spend the evening?' You did not return to your flat until nearly eleven o'clock at night. "'I went for a walk,' said Thalia Drummond, coolly. 
If you'll give me a map of London, I will endeavour to retrace my footsteps. Suppose some of them have already been traced. Her eyes narrowed. In that case, she said quietly, I am safe the bother of telling you where I went. Now look here, Miss Drummond, he leant across the table. I am perfectly sure that you are not, in your heart of hearts, a murderess. That word makes you wince, and it is an ugly one. But there are suspicious circumstances which I have not yet revealed to Parr about your movements last night. Being under suspicion is a normal condition with me, she said, and since you know so much, it is quite unnecessary for me to tell you more. He looked at her, but she returned his gaze without faltering, and then with a shrug of his shoulders he said, Really, I don't think it matters where you were. I'm almost inclined to agree with you, she mocked him, and went back to her office and her typewriter. An amazing personality, thought Derrick Yale. Women did not ordinarily interest him, but Thalia Drummond was beyond and outside of the general run. Her beauty had no appeal for him. He knew she was pretty, just as he knew his office door was painted brown and that the colour of a penny stamp was red. He took up the paper again and re-read some of the comments upon the inefficiency of police headquarters, and soon after, as he had expected, Parr came into the room with a certain briskness and dropped into a chair. "'The Commissioner has asked for my resignation,' he said. And to the other's surprise, his voice was almost cheerful. "'I'm not worrying. I intended to retire three years ago when my brother left me his money.' This was the first intimation Derrick Yale had received that Inspector Parr was a comparatively rich man. "'What are you going to do?' he asked, and Parr smiled. "'In government offices, when you are asked to resign, you resign,' he said dryly. "'But my resignation will not take effect until the end of next month. I must wait and see what happens to you, my friend.' "'To me?' said Derrick Yale, in surprise. "'Oh, you mean the warning that I am to be polished off on the fourth? Let me see, there are only two or three days of life left for me.' He laughed ironically, as he glanced at the calendar. "'I don't think you need wait for that. But, joking apart, why resign at all? Do you think if I saw the Commissioner—' "'He'd take much less notice of you than he would of a row of beans if they started articulating,' said Mr. Parr. "'As a matter of fact, he isn't taking me off the case until my resignation comes into effect, and I have you to thank for that.' "'Me?' The stout inspector was laughing silently. I told him that your life was so precious to the country that it was necessary I should remain on duty until I got you over the fatal date, he said. Thalia Drummond came in at that moment with another batch of correspondence. Good morning, Miss Drummond. The inspector raised his eyes to the girl. I've been reading about you this morning, said Thalia coolly. You're becoming quite a public character, Mr. Parr. Anything for the sake of a little advertisement, murmured the inspector, without resentment. It is a long time since I saw your name in the paper, Miss Drummond. His reference to her appearance in a police court seemed to afford Thalia a great deal of amusement. 
"'I shall have my share in time,' she said. "'What is the latest news about the Crimson Circle?' "'The latest news,' said Mr. Parr slowly, "'is that all correspondence addressed to the Crimson Circle of Mildred Street "'must in future be sent elsewhere.' "'He saw her face change. "'It was only a momentary flash, "'but the effect was very gratifying to Inspector Parr.' "'Are they opening offices in the city?' she asked, recovering herself rapidly. "'I don't see why they shouldn't. They seem to do almost as much as they like, and I don't see why they should not live in a very handsome block with elevators and electric signs. No, I don't think they'd better have electric signs, because even the police would see them.' "'Sarcasm in a young woman,' said Mr. Parr severely, "'is not only unbecoming, it is indecent.' Yale was listening to this exchange with a delighted smile. If the girl surprised him, there were moments when Inspector Parr surprised him as much. This heavy man had a very light, malicious touch when he wished. "'And where were you last night, Miss Drummond?' asked Parr, his eyes on the ground. "'In bed and dreaming,' said Thalia Drummond. "'Then you must have been walking in your sleep when you were loafing about at the back of Froyant's house.' "'About half-past nine, suggested the inspector. "'So that is it, eh?' said Thalia. "'You found my dainty footsteps in the garden. "'Mr. Yale has hinted as much already.' "'No, inspector. I went for a walk in the park at night. "'The solitude is very inspiring.' "'Still Parr regarded the carpet attentively. "'Well, when you walk in the park, young lady,' Keep at some distance from Jack Beardmore, because the last time you trailed him, you scared him. It hit truly this time. Her face flushed crimson, and her delicate eyebrows met in a frown. Mr. Beardmore isn't easily scared, she said. And besides, besides... Suddenly she turned and went from the room, and when Parr, after a little further conversation, also went into the outer office, she looked up at him and scowled. "'There are times, Inspector, when I positively hate you,' she said vehemently. "'You surprise me,' said Inspector Parr. Chapter 32 A Trip to the Country Police headquarters was on its trial. The uncomfortable amount of space which the newspapers were giving to the latest of these tragedies, which were associated with the name of Crimson Circle, the questions which were on the paper to be asked in Parliament, no less than the conferences behind closed doors at headquarters, and the aloofness of all who were ordinarily connected with Inspector Parr in his work, were ominous signs which he did not fail to appreciate. There was hardly a newspaper which did not publish a very complete list of the outrages for which the Crimson Circle was responsible, and not one which did not mention pointedly the damning fact that from the very beginning of the circle's activity, Inspector Parr had had charge of the various cases. He asked for, and was granted, leave to make inquiries in France. During his few days' absence, his superiors arranged for his successor. He had only one friend at headquarters, and that, curiously and strangely enough, was Colonel Morton, the commissioner in control of Parr's department. Morton fought his case, but knew that it was a hopeless one from the beginning. In this he had the assistance of Derek Yale. 
Yale made an early call at headquarters and gave the fullest particulars with the object of exonerating his official colleague. The mere fact that I was on the spot and that I had been specially engaged to protect Fryand must take a lot of responsibility from Parr's shoulders, he urged. The commissioner leant back in his chair and folded his arms. I don't want to hurt your feelings, Mr. Yale, he said bluntly, but officially you have no existence, and I am afraid that nothing you will say is going to help Mr. Parr. He has had his chance. In fact, he has had several chances, and he has missed them. Just as Yale was going, the commissioner beckoned him to remain. "'You can throw light upon one subject, Mr. Yale,' he said. "'It has reference to the killing of the man who shot James Beardmore. You remember Sibley, the sailor?' Yale nodded, and resumed the seat he had vacated. "'Who was in the cell when you were taking this man's evidence?' "'Myself, Mr. Parr, and an official shorthand writer.' "'Man or woman?' asked the commissioner. A man. I think he was a member of your staff, and that was all. The jailer came in once or twice. In fact, he came in while we were there and brought the water, which was found afterwards to contain the poison. The commissioner opened the folder and selected from many documents a sheet of foolscap. Here is the jailer's statement, he said. I'll save you the preliminaries, but this is what he says, said the commissioner. He fixed his glasses and read slowly. The prisoner sat on his bed. Mr. Parr was sitting facing him, and Mr. Yale was standing with his back to the cell door, which was open when I went in. I took a tin mug half full of water which I drew from a faucet which had been fixed for the purpose of supplying drinking water. I remember putting the tin down whilst I attended a bell call from another cell. So far as I know, it was impossible that this tin could be tempered with, though it is true that the door into the yard was open. When I went into the cell, Mr. Parr took the tin from my hand and set it on a ledge near the door and told me not to interrupt them. You notice that no reference is made to the shorthand writer. Was he obtained locally, do you think? I'm almost sure he was from your office. I must ask Parr about that, said the commissioner. Mr. Parr, who had returned from France, when questioned on the telephone, admitted that the shorthand writer was a local man whom he had secured by making inquiries in the little town. In the confusion which had followed the discovery that Sibley was dead, he had not thought to inquire about the man's identity. A typewritten transcript of Sibley's statement had been given to him, and he remembered indistinctly paying the writer for his trouble. That was as far as he could help the commissioner, whose information on the subject was not greatly increased. Derrick Yale waited whilst this telephonic communication was in progress, and when the colonel had finished, he gathered from his dissatisfied expression that Parr's information was of no particular value. "'You don't remember the man yourself?' Yale shook his head. "'His back was to me most of the time,' he said and he sat by the side of Pa. The commissioner muttered something about gross carelessness, and then, "'I shouldn't be surprised if your shorthand writer was an emissary of the Crimson Circle,' he said. "'It was a piece of criminal neglect to have taken a man whose identity cannot be established 
for such an important piece of work. Yes, Parr has failed. He sighed. I am sorry in many ways. I like Parr. Of course, he's one of the old-fashioned police officers whom you bright, outside men affect to despise, and he hasn't any extraordinary gifts, although he has been, in his time, a remarkably good officer. But he'll have to go. That is decided. I may tell you this because I've already made the same intimation to Parr himself. It is a thousand pities. It was no news to Yale, nor was it news to the youngest officer at police headquarters. But the person who seemed least concerned was Inspector Parr himself. He went about his routine work as though unconscious that any extraordinary change in his position was contemplated, and even when he met his successor, who came to look at the office he was shortly to occupy, was geniality itself. One afternoon he met Jack Beardmore by accident in the park, and Jack was struck by the stout little man's good spirits. "'Well, Inspector,' said Jack, "'are we any nearer the end?' Parr nodded. "'I think we are,' he said. "'The end of me.' This was the first definite news Jack had received of the Inspector's retirement. "'But surely you're not going?' You have all the threats in your hands, Mr. Parr. They can't be so foolish as to dispense with you at this very critical moment, unless they have given up all hope of capturing the scoundrel. Mr. Parr thought they had given up all hope long ago, but the attitude of headquarters was a subject which he did not care to pursue. Jack was going down to his country house. He had not visited the place since his father's death, and he would not have gone now, but the necessity had arisen for revising a number of farm leases, and since the business could not be done in town, and there were other matters which needed local attention, he decided to spend the night in a place which had, in addition to the memory of this tragedy, memories almost as distasteful. "'Going down into the country, are you?' said Mr. Parr, thoughtfully. "'Alone?' "'Yes,' said Jack, and then, as he guessed the other's thoughts, he asked eagerly, "'You would not care to come down as my guest, would you, Mr. Parr? "'I should be delighted if you could. "'But I suppose this Crimson Circle investigation will keep you in town.' "'I think they'll get on very well without me,' said Mr. Parr, grimly. "'Yes, I think I should like to come down with you. "'I haven't been to the house since your poor father's death, "'and I should like to go over the grounds again.' "'He asked for an additional two days' leave,' and headquarters, which would have willingly dispensed with him for the remainder of his lifetime, agreed. As Jack was leaving that night, the inspector went home, packed a small Gladstone bag, and met him at the station. Neither the weather nor the roads were conducive to a long motor-car journey, and on the whole the inspector agreed that travelling by train was more comfortable. He had left a little note addressed to Derek Yale, telling him where he was going, and added at the foot, it is possible circumstances may arise which would need my presence in town. Do not hesitate to send for me if this should be the case. Remembering this postscript, Mr. Parr's subsequent conduct was not a little odd. Chapter 33 The Posters Jack did not find him a pleasant travelling companion. The inspector had brought with him a whole bundle of newspapers, in each of which he read religiously the comments upon the Crimson Circle. 
His host saw what he was reading, and was astonished that the man, phlegmatic as he was, could find any pleasure in the uncomplimentary references to himself which filled the journals. He said as much. The inspector put down a paper on his knees and took off his steel-rimmed pince-nez. "'I don't know,' he said. "'Criticism never did anybody any harm. It is only when a man knows he is wrong that this kind of stuff irritates him. As I happen to know I am right, it doesn't matter to me what they say.' "'You really think you are right? In what respect?' asked Jack, curiously but here Pa was not offering any information. They arrived at the little station and drove the three miles which separated the line from the big gaunt house which had been James Beardmore's delight. Jack's butler, who had come down to superintend arrangements for his master's comfort, handed a telegram to Inspector Pa almost as soon as he put his foot across the threshold. Pa looked at the face of the envelope and then at the back. "'How long has this been here?' "'It arrived about five minutes ago. A cyclist messenger brought it up from the village,' he said. The inspector tore open the envelope and extracted the form. It was signed Derek Yale and read, "'Come back to London at once. Most important development.' Without a word, he handed the message to the young man. "'Of course you'll go. It's rather a nuisance. There isn't a train until nine o'clock,' said Jack who was disappointed at the prospect of losing his companion. "'I'm not going,' said Parr calmly. "'Nothing in the wide world would make me take another train journey tonight. It must wait.' This attitude toward the summons did not somehow go with Jack's perception of the inspector's character. He was, if the truth be told, secretly disappointed, although he was glad enough that Parr would share his first night in the house, every corner, every room of which seemed to have its own especial ghost. Parr looked at the telegram again. "'He must have sent this within half an hour of our leaving the station,' he said. "'You have a telephone, haven't you?' Jack nodded, and Parr put through a long-distance call. It was a quarter of an hour before the tinkle of the bell announced that he had been connected. Jack heard his voice in the hall, and presently the detective came in. "'As I thought,' he said. "'The wire was a fake. I've just been on to friend Yale.' "'And did you guess it was a fake?' Mr. Parr nodded. "'I'm getting almost as good a guesser as Yale,' said the detective good-humouredly. He spent the evening initiating the young man into the mysteries of Piquet, of which Parr was a past master. There's probably no more fascinating card-game for two in the world than this, and so pleasantly was the evening passed that it was with a shock that Jack looked at the clock and found it was midnight. The room to which the inspector was shown was that which had been occupied by James Beardmore in his lifetime. It was a roomy apartment, lofty and expansive. There were three long windows, and at night the room, as the rest of the house, was lighted by means of an acetylene gas plant which James Beardmore had installed. "'Where are you sleeping, by the way?' he said, as he paused at the entrance of his room after saying good-night. "'I'm in the next room,' said Jack, and Parr nodded and closed the door, locking it behind him. He heard Jack's door shut, and proceeded to divest himself of part of his clothing. He made no attempt to undress, 
but taking from his battered suitcase an old silk dressing-gown, he wrapped it about him, turned out the light, and, walking to the windows, pulled up the three blinds. The night was fairly light. There was sufficient to enable him to find his way back to the bed on which he lay, pulling the eider-down over him. There is a method by which the worst cases of insomnia-haunted patients may obtain sleep, though it is one which I believe is very little known. It is to attempt deliberately to keep one's eyes open in the dark. Mr. Parr succeeded only by turning on his side and staring out of the nearest window, which had opened a little. Towards morning he rose suddenly and stepped noiselessly towards the nearest window. He had heard a faint whir of sound, a noise which a smoothly running motor-car makes, but now there was a profound silence. He went to the washstand and rubbed his face with cold water, drying it leisurely. Then he walked back to the window, pulled up a chair, and sat so that he commanded whatever view there was of the avenue leading to the front of the house. He had to wait nearly half an hour before he saw a dark figure steal from the shadow of the trees, only to disappear again in a deeper shadow. He momentarily glimpsed it again as it passed out of his range of vision into the shadow of the house itself. The inspector moved softly from the room and, crossing the landing, went down the stairs. The main door of the house was bolted and locked, and it was some time before he could open it. When he stepped out into the night, there was nobody in sight. He crept stealthily along the path which ran parallel with the house, but found no intruder, and had reached the main entrance again when he heard the sound of the motor fading gradually. The midnight visitor had gone. He closed and bolted the door and went back to his room. This visit puzzled him. It was clear that the man, whoever he was, had not seen Pa, nor could he have been certain that he was under observation. He must have come and gone almost immediately. It was not until he came down to breakfast in the morning that the mystery of the visitation was revealed. Jack was standing before the fire, reading a crumpled paper, which looked as if it had been posted up and torn. It was the size of a small poster, and hand-printed. Before he saw its contents, Parr knew that it was a message from the Crimson Circle. "'What do you think of this?' asked Jack, looking round as the detective came in. "'We found half a dozen of these posters, pasted or tacked onto the trees of the drive, and this one was stuck up under my window.' The detective read, "'Your father's debt?' is still unpaid. It will remain unpaid if you persuade your friends Derek Yale and Parr to cease their activity. Underneath was written in smaller characters, and evidently added as an afterthought, We shall make no further demands upon private individuals. So he was bill-posting, said Parr thoughtfully. I wondered why he came and left so early. "'Did you see him?' asked Jack in surprise. "'I just glimpsed him. In fact, I knew he would call, though I expected a more startling consequence,' said the detective. He sat through breakfast without saying a word, except to answer the questions that Jack put to him, and then only in the briefest fashion, and it was not until they were walking across the meadows that Parr asked, "'I wonder if he knows you're fond of Thalia Drummond.' Jack went red. "'Why do you ask that?' 
he said a little anxiously. You don't think they will take their vengeance on Thalia, do you? If it would serve his purpose, he would wipe out Thalia Drummond like that. The detective snapped his fingers. He put an end to further conversation by stopping and turning about in his tracks. This will do, he said. I thought you wanted to go to the station gate, the way Marl came to the house that morning. Parr shook his head. No, I wished to be sure how he approached the house. Can you point out the spot where he suddenly became so agitated? Why, of course, said Jack readily, but wondering what it was all about. It was much nearer the house. In fact, I can give you the exact spot, because I particularly remember his stepping aside from the path and ruining a young rose tree in which he put his foot. There is the tree, or one the gardener has put in its place. He pointed and Parr nodded his large head several times. "'This is very important,' he said. He walked to where the ruined tree had been. "'I knew he was lying,' he said half to himself. "'You cannot see the terrace from here at all. Marl told me that he saw your father standing on the terrace at the very moment he had a seizure, and my first impression was that it was the sight of your father which was responsible for his scare.' He gave Jack details of the conversation he had had with Felix Marl before his death. "'I could have corrected that,' said Jack. "'My father was in the library all the morning, and he did not come out of the house until we were ascending the steps of the terrace.' Parr, notebook in hand, was making a rough sketch. On his left front was a solid block of Sedgewood House. Immediately before him were the gardens, enclosed by light iron railings, to prevent the cattle straying on to the flower-beds, and broken by the gate through which Marl must have passed. On the right was a patch of bushes, in the midst of which showed the gay top of a garden umbrella. "'Dad was very fond of the shrubbery,' explained Jack. "'We get high winds here, even on the warmest days, and the shrubbery affords shelter. Dad used to sit there for hours, reading.' Parr was slowly turning on his heel, taking in every detail of the view." Presently he nodded. "'I think I've seen all there is to be seen,' he said. As they were walking back to the house, he reverted to the midnight bill-poster, and to Jack's surprise, "'That was the only false move that the Crimson Circle have made, and I think it was very much an afterthought. That was not their original intention, I'll swear.' He sat down on the steps of the terrace and stared out over the landscape. Jack could not but think that a more uninspiring figure than Mr. Parr he had never met. His lack of inches, his rotundity, his large, placid face, did not somehow fit in with Jack's conception of a shrewd criminal investigator. "'I've got it,' said Parr at last. "'My first idea was right. He was coming down to blackmail you for the money your father did not pay.' On his way he conceived this new idea, which is hinted at in the postscript of his message. He has decided upon some big coup, so that the reference to myself and Yale may be genuine, and he really does want us out of the game, though he'd be a fool if he did not know that the likelihood of his wishes being fulfilled in that respect are pretty remote. Let me see the poster again. Jack brought it and the inspector spread it upon the pavement of the terrace. Yes, this has been written in a hurry. 
probably written in his car, and it's a substitute for the poster he originally intended. He rubbed his chin impatiently. Now, what is the new scheme? He was to learn almost immediately, for the butler came hurrying out to say that the telephone bell had been ringing in Jack's study for five minutes. "'It is you they want,' said Jack, handing the receiver to the detective. Mr. Parr took the instrument in his hands, and recognised immediately Colonel Morton's voice. "'Come back to London at once, Pa. You are to attend a meeting of the Cabinet this afternoon.' Mr. Parr put down the receiver, and a smile spread over his big face. "'What is it?' asked Jack. "'I'm joining the Cabinet,' said Mr. Parr and laughed as Jack had never seen him laugh before. End of section 13